if you're going to meet your commitments, you've got to get on it. You can't get to, I think people think they're going to get to 2029 and then start to meet their 2030 commitment. That's not going to work. And I think the people that are charged in, in, in companies that have made net zero commitments, the, 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 the companies that are really leading in those efforts, know that they can't wait. Welcome to Sustainability in the Air, the world's first podcast dedicated to sustainable aviation. I'm your host, Shashank Nigam, the CEO of Simply Flying. Every Thursday, I have important conversations with top aviation executives, technology entrepreneurs, and policymakers helping aviation take climate action. Conversations that help separate the signal from the noise. Whether you are a frequent flyer or an airline executive, if you care about sustainability or simply love traveling, welcome aboard. My guest today is Jean Gepolis. Jean, since 1996, has played a pioneering and leading role in building today's $136 billion global biofuels industry. Previously, these were known as biofuels. In aviation, these are now known as SAF. In 1998, he launched World Energy to drive positive change by accelerating the commercialization of alternatives like SAF in aviation and biodiesel in road transport. The interesting thing is, I was recently at a conference where I heard two airlines speaking to each other that if you needed SAF tomorrow, you can only get it from World Energy in Los Angeles. So it's a pleasure to speak with Gene today on the entire journey from World Energy on betting big on alternative fuels like SAF when they weren't a thing, when they could not predict what the IRA is going to bring to you and how he worked with airlines and now large corporations and what he sees the future of decarbonizing aviation. Gene, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, you are one of the few non-airline, non-airport executives who has joined us on this podcast. You, of course, are the CEO of World Energy. World Energy is associated primarily as you know as a fuels company, but you're transforming the company into an alternative fuels company. Would you give us an introduction of exactly what World Energy does and how you work with aviation? Well, yeah, uh, you you gave a really good summary of our history. We're a, we're a 25 year old um, biofuels and advanced biofuels based company uh, operating in the U.S. and uh, around the world in various di- different segments of of, of that. Uh, and as we have evolved, we are really focused on, as we always have been, on customer customer need and our customer. Uh, is a customer who needs to decarbonize for whatever reason, uh, whether that's a regulatory reason or a voluntary compliance reason or some other reason. We work back from the customer, and increasingly what we have found where we are now is the products that we're moving into really don't exist. So sustainable aviation fuel, as much as there's so much ink spilled about it, there's really not very much product. So we are really focused on building the capacity to really scale up sustainable aviation fuel. And then on the journey to that uh, that effort, we really are, have been focused on, well, how do you decarbonize? We're not actually selling the molecules. We're selling 
the value of those molecules. So sure, we do sell the molecules as, as BTUs, but for the most part, those will uh, move a plane from point A to point B just as well as other molecules will. But these molecules do it in a decarbonized fashion. So we're really working on creating the ecosystem for that decarbonized service to exist. And so creating the, the market interface for it to exist and the physical capacity to deliver that service. So we're uh, spending billions of dollars in, in L.A. to take the facility that's been producing SAF since 2016 uh, up to the full scale of what it can be. Uh, we're working on a, a similar project in Houston. But on the journey, uh, we have realized that not only do we have to decarbonize based on feedstocks that we use, but also on the hydrogen we use. Hydrogen is a key component in the production of SAF. And there are, as we are all learning, different ways to produce hydrogen. Some are higher carbon intensity and some are lower carbon intensity. And if your product is the carbon reduction, then everything you do has to be about redu reducing carbon. So we've really been focused on a, a hydrogen learning journey here for about the last three years. And that's led us to really interesting places. We can't do well, green hydrogen in Los Angeles. But on the path to trying to learn how to decarbonize uh, in, in L.A. as best as we can possibly do, we've learned a lot about green hydrogen and ultimately triggered a project on the west coast of Newfoundland. Well, it looks like it'll be one of the largest green hydrogen projects uh, in the world uh, and one of the very first. Uh, we've been making tremendous headway uh, on that initiative. But it all fits into the same, uh, it, the same category of go build what your customer base is going to need. So, Gene, you alluded to having a big refinery in Los Angeles. This rings a bell because I was at a recent industry conference and I heard in passing between two airlines that they were saying the only place you can get SAF tomorrow, if you wanted it tomorrow, was the World Energy Plant in Los Angeles. And they were dead serious. Everywhere else, you, you just cannot get SAF. There's, there's not enough of it. There isn't going... Tell us exactly how this came to be. You, did you already have the plant? Did you decide to make SAF at that plant? Was the plant already making SAF? How did the LA factory come to be, the, the refinery come to be? And how is it such a critical part of this entire SAF value chain today as we speak about it? Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you I, I had tremendous insight uh, going back a decade or so, and then everything just progressed logically. But that's not how my life works. And I, I think I, it's not how a, a lot of lives work. So in, in advanced biofuels in the United States, two things were really emerging by 2014, 2015 as, as really key trends in the industry. Uh, first, uh, biodiesel was starting to give way to renewable diesel as the preferred technology. And second, the California Air Resources Board uh, their their implementation of the of the low carbon fuel standard uh, in California was really skewing markets such that you needed to be in renewable diesel and you needed to be in California and so we had identified a site in Paramount California uh, um, around that time around 2015 2016 um, started working on a on a deal to buy that site uh, and and uh, concluded that transaction in 2018. What I, what I didn't really appreciate fully at the time was the sustainable aviation fuel component of that deal. 
Uh, the business was called Alt Air. It was focused on being uh, a sustainable aviation fuel business. So it was a relatively small um, part of the output of the facility, and the facility needed a lot of investment. And so as we started looking at how to bring that facility to what it could be, there was the beginnings of a of new technological capability to go to a max SAF technology. So instead of intentionally producing uh, high uh, yields of renewable diesel, you could produce high yields of sustainable aviation fuel. Working with our partners uh, at Honeywell UOP, uh, we started working on could we uh, convert this facility into a SAP facility. It, to your point about your question about two airline execs saying, hey, you, the only place you can get this stuff is in, in Los Angeles. There is so much talk about sustainable aviation fuel, but it turns out that it's, these are big investments to actually produce this product and that there's very much a chicken and egg situation. And so we were very fortunate that, that uh, at our facility in LA, we've been producing uh, the product since 2016. So we already had the chicken. And so we could already start producing eggs. They're small eggs, but then we could already start producing eggs. And so we were already in a conversation with customers. But what we, what we found was, was that the airlines were just selling on the service of decarbonization uh, to their customers. And so it was that customer base that really needed to be developed and, and that there was no ecosystem to service that customer in a way that made much sense. So we had, we had a two-pronged challenge ahead of us. One, if you don't have the product, you can talk about it all you want but it doesn't mean anything. And the other thing is, if you don't have the customer base and the ecosystem for the customer base to, to transact in, you don't, have, you don't have the entirety of the supply chain. And unless you can get from the very front of the supply chain to the very back end of the, uh, end of the supply chain, it doesn't work. So we needed to work on all of the pieces of that and have been for a number of years Right. This is very impressive. And thank you for sharing the backstory. Very often we miss the context of how things came to be. Um, and we will touch upon all of these stages and, you know, in, in the entire value process. Let's start with the first bit. You got this plant, which was producing a little bit of SAF. At that time, there was no IRA. At that time, there were no mandates in the EU. At that time, there were no airlines making a line for SAF. Hey, give me SAF. And, you know, how, how did you decide to invest and why did you decide to invest? This is incredible foresight. If you look back right now that you decided to not sh just shut this small little part of the factory off and make, you know, use it, use the resources for more profitable uh, or more in demand uses of that. In, in fact, what does it take to build a SAF plant in terms of investment, uh, what are, we, what are the amounts we are talking about? And how did you decide to put this money in? Well, um, my partner in this endeavor is Canadian. And so we like to use Canadian analogies. And, and probably the most overused Canadian analogy of all time, as you know it's coming, is you've got to, to skate to where the puck is going to be, right? And so, uh, look, it, 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 it's very clear if you, take a, if you zoom back a little bit and you say, okay, how are we going to decarbonize? Uh, on the road? How are we going to decarbonize uh, at sea? How are we going to decarbonize on rail? And how are we going to decarbonize in the air? By far, 
the stickiest, the stickiest of those wickets is how are we going to decarbonize in the air? And, and everyone in aviation, whether you're a buyer or a seller, has a fundamental problem. Aviation is projected to continue to grow, and even though it's somewhere between 25 or 3% of total carbon emissions today, any projection forward to 2050 and beyond shows an unabated growth of aviation emissions that just keep on growing. So this, is a, this becomes an existential uh, threat in the aviation world, uh, whether you're uh, flying your people and your goods around or whether you are flying goods and people around for others. This is a fundamental problem, and it absolutely lacks any serious solution. Uh, because of the lifespan, uh, lifespan of an airplane, the answer has to be in the fuel tank. Uh, there's, there's, there's no change of capital equipment that gets us anywhere close to decarbonizing anytime soon. And so based on uh, early work with, with our early customer base, uh, uh, and, and United in particular was a, a very big uh, early supporter of what we were doing, um, we started working on how do we start to take the steps that need to be taken to uh, scale up this industry and innovate? There's, there's, there's this idea sometimes in innovation that if you only wait around for the perfect, you won't waste time and resources on the imperfect. Well, I couldn't disagree more with that, with, with that uh, premise. I think that's crazy. That's just not how innovation happens. Innovation is one inadequate step after another, after another, after another, and you keep on getting better. And so, as I said at the outset about how we arrived at, at our hydrogen initiatives, we didn't set out to be out and, and working on, on hydrogen. We're working now on a $12 billion project in, in Canada uh, to be an early leader in green hydrogen. We have that comes directly from our work in uh, sustainable aviation fuel. And our work in sustainable aviation fuel comes directly from our work on ground fuel. And, and so one thing always leads to another. And so we've been absolutely convinced that somebody has to move. Uh, and that if we do, we will be able to team up with others who need us to move. And we're, that's right. proving to be true. And we're, we're finding the customer base, both in the users of and the delivery deliverers of the service of, of, of aviation. And, and they, they both need to be on board. This, is, this needs to be a com complete uh, tied together supply chain where we get the suppliers of the fuel, the suppliers of the aviation service, and the buyers of the aviation service all working in concert together. So right. that's what we're working on. How did, how did we um, come to the decision to do it? Because it's the biggest problem, hardest one to solve. And I think our role is to go after the hard problem. Well, I, I love the vision. I love the innovation. I have built Simply Flying in a similar fashion, you know, not always having the answers or the perfect solutions. But let's go give it a shot. So this is truly inspiring. You mentioned hydrogen. Just to step back a little, hydrogen in this case is a feedstock. It's it's the input that's needed to do ultimately fully green uh, SAF, right? How green is your SAF? Given that there are fewer pressures in the U.S. for feedstocks compared to 
the Europe uh, or the European Union, for example. What are the current feedstocks you use for SAF and why this shift to hydrogen? Well, I, I want to be clear. So uh, in both our first plant in, in Los Angeles and the, and the expanded uh, component of that first plant, as well as our next initiative in Houston, we're using fats, oils, and greases as the base feedstock. But it's a hydro-treated process. So we need hydrogen to produce fats, oils, and grease-based uh, biofuel for aviation, right? So it all, we're already, no matter what, you, you have to be in hydrogen. And so then your choices are, do I want to do hydrogen the traditional way, uh, SMR with, uh, with gas, or in, in many places around the world, they're still using coal to, to, uh, through coal gas, uh, gasification into, into SMRs. So there are lots of different ways to get to hydrogen. And so we really had to go on a learning journey on how are the ways that we're going to get to hydrogen that decarbonize our products so that we can that we can deliver the best service uh, of, of decarbonization. So we're working on hydrogen in, in a, a number of different ways. One is within our existing facility in LA, how can we reduce the carbon impact of our C-methane reformer that produces the hydrogen as much as possible? So we're capturing off gases of our process, which are produced by the biogenic inputs, capturing those gases running them through the SMR and generating hydrogen from our own biogenic off-gases, as, as an example. Uh, so we're able to produce a much lower CI uh, type of hydrogen through that mechanism than we would be otherwise able to do. In Houston, we're looking at uh, a number of different ways that we'll get to uh, hydrogen, including electrolytic hydrogen. And so the, the path down electrolytic hydrogen got us looking at, well, what, what are the drivers of value in, in electrolytic hydrogen, meaning hydrogen that's taken from a renewable resource through an electrolyzer uh, to power an electrolyzer that take water and split the hydrogen from the oxygen, right? So that's, a, that's electrolytic hydrogen. Well, we were looking at that, and, and the most important piece of that is what are you paying for the renewable resource? So then we looked at, okay, well, where are there really good renewable resources that are being untapped that could, that be, could be part of the hydrogen store? And that brought us to the west coast of Newfoundland, uh, which is way up in the northeast of Canada. And it's got a number of really important components for this. One, it's got world-class wind. Uh, it's just it's the the wind is very consistent, and it's uh, and it's very high speed, and it's in the middle of uh, I don't want to say nowhere, but it is in a, a very lightly populated area, and, and there are people that live there, and we're very closely engaged with those people to make sure that anything we do there is a is a uh, massive net positive to the community, but. It's very sparsely populated. They've got lots of fresh water. We purchased this facility in, the, the, uh, in Stephenville, a uh, very large port facility with deep water access and, and the like. So um, <clears throat> this is, I guess this is a long, uh, we started in, in uh, the, the answer started in Los Angeles and taking biogenic off gases to make hydrogen. 
And it's gotten us all the way through Houston up to Newfoundland where we're taking uh, uh, latent wind capacity and splitting freshwater uh, hydrogen from oxygen. But I think it's a perfect example of the innovation that can come from movement, from taking action, from, from, from leaning forward. I don't think you kind of design that all on a whiteboard. You, you, you have to, you have to go, just go take action. Clearly, we don't have enough batch oils and greases in the world to do all aviation decarbonization. So we will have to come up with next generation work. A lot of that ne next generation is hydrogen-based. And so uh, whether if we can take captured carbon and process that with clean hydrogen in a way to make sustainable aviation fuel from entirely new materials, that has real promise. But it's early stage. It's very early days in that. Uh, and so <clears throat> there's, a, there's a challenge in our space, which is how do you marry the first generation with the second generation? I know there's an argument in our, in our space that says, don't bother with that first generation stuff. In fact, a lot of the EU rules would suggest that some of the folks that, that uh, have been advising the EU are of that view, that the first generation should be moved past as quickly as possible. I couldn't disagree more. The first generation is the generation that will allow us to create the ecosystem of transaction, the product of decarbonization of aviation as a service. That product will be created in the first generation, off the first generation of biofuel. And we can scale that to a reasonably high level. Some would say so, somewhere between 10 and 20 billion uh, gallons can be produced that way, uh, just based on what we can foreseeable um, uh, available feedstock. That gets us to, to about 20% of the total problem. So uh, ultimately, we're going to have to get to hydrogen-based or other as yet unforeseen uh, solutions. But most of any solution you're looking at is going to have a hydrogen component. So any time spent focused on hydrogen is time well spent. How did we find it? So my partner, John Risley, uh, started off in seafood. Uh, John's based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, he started a company called uh, Clearwater Fine Foods, Inc. Uh, Clearwater ended up becoming... That's a Canadian legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there you have. So uh, somehow below the 49th parallel, nobody's heard of these folks. You go up... Uh, in, in Everyone the, in Canada knows them. Everybody knows John Risley. Everybody knows. Uh, CFFI. So, um, so it, in in the span of whatever it's been, 30, 40 years of building uh, CFFI, John came to know virtually every local community in, in Atlantic Canada. Know the people, know the characteristics, know the logistics, know every the politics, the, to come to know every bit of it. Now, when he and I started working, that struck me as the most some completely irrelevant information to the work we were doing together. But, and it was at that time. Uh, but as time went by, uh, and we were learning about uh, green hydrogen, particularly the air products project in, in Saudi Arabia, Neom Saudi Arabia, we worked very closely with air products, started learning about their initiative. Well, one weekend, John called me and said, hey, look, I know where the most fantastic wind in the world is. And it is a very sparsely populated area. 
we ought to take a look at that for green hydrogen. And I, of course, said, John, I, I know absolutely nothing about green hydrogen. And he said, I know even less. And then we, the, there was a moment of silence. And so we laughed and we said, so, yeah, of course we should do this. Uh, and so we, we went on a learning journey and, and have been on one ever since. A couple, couple years into that, we were fortunate enough to uh, uh, last summer uh, be able to host uh, the Chancellor of Germany and, uh, and the Prime Minister of Canada at our site. Uh, it's, it, you know, hydrogen, is, hydrogen is another area, very similar to SAP, where there's all talk and very little action. I remember this one. I think this was uh, the G7 summit that happened in Canada at that time. And they, it was about exporting hydrogen to Germany, if I'm not wrong. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, we, we, we were the host of where the, uh, the Canada-Germany Hydrogen Alliance was, yep. was, uh, was signed. I, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> now, we, we digressed a little, uh, you know, given my Canadian roots here, uh, onto this fascinating location. Now, one of the other facts of the matter is not only is World Energy one of the few suppliers where you can buy SAF tomorrow. Uh, in 2021, uh, in our book, uh, we mentioned that 80% of the world's SAF was in California, which, of course, is where your LA plant is based. Can you tell us the regulatory framework that makes this possible and what other areas in the world could learn from California's lead. Yeah, so so um, what you're trying to do in SAP is is in, in frankly any clean fuel is reduce the cost as much as possible to the customer. And the way you do that in uh, in advanced biofuels is to um, uh, optimize the the credits uh, that you can generate associated with uh, with the particular fuel. And in California, we can generate uh, California-specific low-carbon fuel standard credit, which uh, provide a revenue source into the, into the fuel, which enables us to sell it to the customer base at a lower price and basically reduce the, the, the cost of decarbonization to the customer. And because of that incremental contribution from the state w w that exists only in the state of California, we can produce uh, SAF at its optimal uh, cost effectiveness today. Now, there's a lot more than you can do than just that. Of course, you got to get to economies of scale. You have to run uh, extremely uh, efficiently. Cost of capital matters. There's a, there's a, your uh, your logistics and integration matter a lot. There are a lot of components that that go into reducing the cost as much as as possible. But we know that getting the cost down is going to be really a critical piece of getting the utilization up and unless you do energy at scale don't bother right so we we know that we have to get to meaningful scale uh and california is the logical place to start to do that uh we at, at our site we operate a pipeline system that uh is very well connected into the into the area including into lax and uh enables us to move the product not only efficiently from a cost perspective but to move it efficiently from a carbon impact perspective, that so we we actually have very little carbon impact associated with the distribution of our finished product. Right. No, that's very, that's very interesting. It's about concentrating the supply, the lowest possible cost. The one side effect of concentrating supply and hence lower prices is also airlines that may not be flying to California or that are not in California do not have access to physical 
SAF. Your pipeline doesn't necessarily go all the way to DC, I'm guessing, uh, from, from your Los Angeles plant. Yet, you had Etihad Airways work with you yes. for COP27, operate a net zero flight last year from Washington, DC, if I'm not wrong, to Abu Dhabi. And that was using a book and claim methodology yes. where they bought all the SAF uh, in California from you. How how does that work? And is this, are you seeing this as a trend among airlines to uh, have book and claim uh, as opposed to physical SAF on the flight? Yeah, that's going to be absolutely critical. And that was a really important flight that we did. Uh, we've done a number of um, uh, SAF 100% flights. We've done flights that uh, you know, uh, demonstrator flights from point A to point B that are running the pure SAF, and, uh, and and we end up running trucks from where where we make the fuel in LA to wherever it needs to be, Chicago, Seattle, wherever. Uh, we've got one going to um, to South Carolina, um, but it always boggles the brain when you're taking a low carbon fuel and running it over a continent to demonstrate that you can fly from point A to point B in a decarbonized way. And the, the kind of the, the height of the, um, uh, of the irony of this was when we got calls to send fuel to Davos, Switzerland. So, uh, so uh, attendees of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting could fly back home on Seth. Obviously, that's absurd. Uh, th th this isn't about uh, displacing one high carbon intensity <laughs> molecule with another high carbon you, intensity. You'd, you'd spend more uh, emissions transporting the oil to Davos. Amen. Amen. So uh, it, it really makes no sense uh, to do that. So what's clear about how decarbonization in aviation has to happen is you have to do that decarbonization service in the most decarbonized way possible. And that means you have to get your head wrapped around. You're not going to move these molecules around. You're going to move the bits of information associated with the molecule that can move freely around the world. But the molecules should go away as close to home as they can possibly go. And so Etihad, uh, in, in that very important flight, didn't fly on they flew on totally regular jet fuel, right? But what they did was they allowed jet fuel that was produced in Los Angeles to go into the jet pool at LAX. That was sustainable aviation fuel. And the same amount of fuel that would be required to, to decarbonize 100% of those emissions were put into the jet pool in, in Los Angeles where no one claimed any benefit of that whatsoever in Los Angeles, which enabled Etihad, who paid for that benefit, to claim it in the flight uh, 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 that, that was done in, before COP last year. So that was really important. Uh, we hear all the time, look, we need to get uh, uh, SAF to some faraway place. Why? Well, because people just can't get their heads wrapped around book and claim. Well, of course they can. When you, when, when you flip on the lights uh, at home, if you, if you check the box on your electric bill and said, I want 100% renewable power in my house, many of us have, do you really think that it's coming from the wind or, or the sun all the time? They seem to come on at night 
They seem to come on when it's not windy. The lights seem to come on. Well, why is that? Well, there's no renewable energy credits have nothing to do with connecting the generation of the electron with the use of the electron. So if we've been doing book and claim in, in the generation of renewable energy credits from wind and solar for decades. Book and claim is not a new idea. If, you, if, if, if I take my paycheck that I get in Boston and fly over to see you in London, uh, Shashank, and I go to the ATM machine and take out my British pound from my U.S. Uh, supplied uh, uh, paycheck, that's book and claim. That's all it is. Book and claim is straightforward. It's efficient. You're not, I'm not taking the exact dollar bills out or, or and it, that's not how that works. And so why would we not use the efficiency of the modern information world to drive efficiency and decarbonization? We have to. This isn't a, this isn't a, maybe this is an idea that people should get their heads wrapped around someday. No, we have to do this. This is the only efficient way to do it. We may end up causing uh, uh, decarbonized iron to be produced in the west coast of Newfoundland. I know we keep coming back to that, and this is a, a, a program about aviation. But it, it's all the same thing. So if we take iron uh, from Newfoundland, uh, or Labrador, I'm sorry, in, in Newfoundland, or, or Quebec, where there's a lot of high-quality iron. And we use local hydrogen to decarbonize that, that iron. Those credits should be applied anywhere a buyer pays for that activity. And so if a, if a Korean company is decarbonizing, making uh, their vehicle, why should they not be in a position to buy that uh, halfway around the world? to decarbonize uh, and create green steel. Well, they should because it's efficient. And so this is so much of when I was talking earlier about the ecosystem that's being built around, these, uh, around this industry. We have to realize that what we're providing our customer is a service. It's either a high carbon service or a low carbon service, but it's a service. And we have to understand that our customers some of them don't care. They just want the lowest price possible. The, 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 the mother and father who are taking their children to Disney may not care the carbon intensity or may not be able to afford changing the carbon intensity of the fuel uh, uh, that they're, they're flying there with. Well, but, but many have already made commitments, so you better care. If you're a corporate leader and you've made a commitment to decarbonize and you've got a heavy carbon footprint associated with aviation, well, of course you care. You've already made a commitment to meet a decarbonization goal that you can't meet without decarbonized aviation. Well, thank you, Gene, for a book and claim 101 here. This is so well explained. <laughs> I love the analogies uh, that I think I'm going to do a mini episode on book and claim 101 by Gene. And <laughs> that that will be a separate one. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, I love that you, you used the analogy and, and simplified this for anyone who wouldn't get it. Now, I know we mentioned Etihad. They are one of the latest users, but you mentioned United earlier. And I've had Scott Kirby on this podcast previously. He's deeply passionate. United has also, I believe, ordered more SAF than any other airline in the world till date. 
you've worked with United for a long time. How did that relation come to be, and what were some of the things you did that were innovative that, at that time uh, with United Airlines? Yeah, United deserves a lot of credit. They 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 moved when others wouldn't in the in the early teens. Uh, they were absolutely essential to getting uh, our facility off the ground. Uh, they were, uh, I wouldn't say a important buyer. I would call them the important buyer in the early days. And so, uh, no question that they that they deserve a lot of credit for having the foresight to begin to stand up a sustainable aviation fuel team. Uh, in 2023, we're at a place where. All right, we're past our infancy, but we're crawling. We're not walking yet, and and we need to stand this industry up. This industry needs to, to walk. And so, I think the role of uh, airlines, whether it's United or any other airline, uh, is an essential one. It's it's more than just taking the SAF on one hand, stripping off the uh, the the carbon value, and passing it on to customers. I think the, the, the role of uh, airlines is going to be really important. I think uh, I asked one airline executive uh, recently, could you see your whole business class on, on high volume routes from point A to point B going fully decarbonized? So if you're sitting in business class where you've already chosen to, to pay a significantly higher premium to get from point A to point B, could you imagine paying relatively a relatively small amount about an additional about three percent premium to get that seat to go from point a to point b and and couldn't we think about this in in a default mechanism that flips the script so your business class ticket is going to be decarbonized fully decarbonized unless you choose to take the high carbon uh choice and wouldn't most business people say, okay, look, and particularly if I've got a mechanism by which that choice will be, will be counted and credited and issued back to me in a report that I can use for my own sustainability reporting so that we make it easy for the sustainability reporting folks in these various companies to be able to track that, track it all the way back. Okay, so you told me that uh, you you destabilize uh, uh, decarbonize my flight. Show me where the feedstock come from. Where the fuel get uh, produced? When did it get produced? What type of feed? What what was the energy intensity of the production process? What kind of hydrogen was used in that? All of that. That's what I call the ecosystem of of aviation decarbonization. That's what we need to build together. And so wow. uh, your question was about United. United has been uh, uh, an early mover in the space and certainly stands to be a really important partner going forward in the development of the mechanism under which we're going to all together serve cust- the customer base better. Right. You alluded to this just now um, a little while back, which is the green premium. SAF is, of course, more expensive than traditional jet fuel. United or most other airlines, I'm guessing, are paying a bit more or a lot more, depending on where they're buying it, for SAF than they, w- than they would pay for Jet A. There's a big debate in the industry right now. Who pays for this green premium? Is it the end customer, me, the traveler? Is it the my company if my employer is buying it? Is it uh, you know a, a corporate that is subsidizing, subsidizing this? What do you think 
is the right way? Who should be paying for this green premium for SAF? But that's that's uh, I, I kind of hate the term green premium. Uh, so the green premium is the difference between a high fossil uh, uh, product and a, and a low fossil uh, or, or low carbon intensity product, and the cost difference between the two. It was the the, the phrase was I think largely either coined by or significantly advanced by Bill Gates. Bill Gates. It's in his new book. Yes, that's correct. There's a full chapter on. And and the book is absolutely incredible. That phrase I'm not really crazy about because it it what we what we think about in the green premium is always how do we get the low carbon product to be sold at the same level as the high carbon product is being sold at. And I think that's the wrong question. First, ultimately society needs to have the the high carbon product pay for the disposal of the high carbon product in such a way that the base part of that green premium goes up. Because right now, society is paying collectively for the individual use of, of high carbon fossil fuels in a way that makes that green premium wider than it otherwise would be. So there, there's that. The second part of it, and I think your question goes to um, who should pay for this. So I think it's a mistake if we think everybody on an airplane has the price, same price sensitivity and same objectives. Uh, there are people flying in the back uh, that uh, are trying to get to see their family or going on vacation or doing a number of things within their family budget. And their, tr and their, their ability to move around on the family budget is, is, is a miracle. Uh, it's really a miracle. And we shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't imagine that aviation is going to only be uh, for those who can afford it. Uh, aviation uh, has become widely available. Almost everybody, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people in the advanced world regularly fly an airplane or at least occasionally fly an airplane. We have to do what any business does, which is target the products for the customers who mo most need those products. And the world's leading corporations across the board have made carbon uh, uh, neutrality or net zero commitments or a, a whole range of commitments. They've set those commitments to a whole range of different dates. Many of them start to kick in in 2030 and that 2050 is a, 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 an age. But when a lot of these were made starting in the teens, it seemed like 2030 was a long way away. Uh, we're now as close to 2030 as we are to 2016. So if you're going to if you're going to meet your commitments, you've got to get on it. You can't get to. I think people think they're going to get to 2029 and then start to meet their 2030 commitments. That's not going to work. And I think the people that are charged in, in in companies that have made net zero commitments, the the, the the companies that are really leading in those efforts, know that they can't wait. They know that they need partners throughout the supply chain uh, to help them meet their decarbonization goal. And this isn't, I think there's a lot of cynicism around decarbonization goals and, and, and net zero goals. And in, in some cases, that's well warranted. But in many cases, uh, companies have put their brand at, at, at stake here. Their brand either meets commitments 
or it doesn't meet commitment. It's either going to be a leader in change or it's going to sit it out on the most important issue that faces humanity today. There, there, there are, this is not a, just a, a nice to have check the box exercise in the world's best company. So the world's best companies, the leading companies, they take their commitment to society seriously and they don't make commitments that they don't intend to fulfill. And so we, as the supply chain of aviation, can help the world's best companies meet their commitment and have their brand mean something. Wow, um, it's inspiring. Uh, we spoke about airlines, of course, how you're enabling airlines. But you've made huge strides in signing deals with large corporates, book and claim deal with Microsoft. There's a new deal you've just inked with DHL. Tell us how do these corporates come into the picture? Because ultimately, airlines are the users. We spoke about them. What role do the likes of Microsoft and DHL have to play? And what do, uh, what do these, these deals look like? So they're both very important deals. And in both cases, they show you uh, the power of the first mover. Uh, could you have a better example on how to decarbonize aviation than to look at the impact of Microsoft? Uh, most of us have lived the life of uh, lifespan of uh, Microsoft and then some. And so in my case, uh, I was a young adult by the time Microsoft became a company. Uh, and that growth of that business was all about moving into a space that didn't yet exist. Time and time and time and time again, Microsoft moved into a space that needed to exist but didn't yet exist. And so that's very similar to, to where we are. And uh, we're, really, uh, we're really heartened and grateful for uh, them moving forward with us. But they're not just buying staff. In fact, they don't buy aviation fuel. They buy a service. They're buying the decarbonization component of SAF. They're not buying the physical molecule. We sell the physical molecule efficiently into Los Angeles and then have that uh, book and claim unit, that, that decarbonized uh, work. That's what Microsoft is buying. And, and so, uh, of course, they, that's a scope three emission. They then can allocate the scope one emission to whoever they choose to allocate it to. They fly on uh, a whole lot of different airlines, and so they can allocate it to who they consider to be their partner. These are going to be partnerships, right? The airlines have a very important role to play. The end customer has a very important role to play, and of course the supply community has an important role to play. So, so what you're yeah. telling me is someone like Microsoft is saying, instead of me saying, hey, United Airlines, I will only fly you if you have SAF on that flight, on that sector. Microsoft is saying, I'm going to take lead here. I'm going to work directly with World Energy so that all of my staff fly on SAF through book and claim, regardless of which airline they're flying. And I don't have to force the airline. Is, is that what's happening here? That's, that's exactly right. And then, and, and then they can work with their airline partner uh, regarding the scope one component so of course the aviation the, the the airline is the one who's generating a scope one emission when they buy fuel and they put it in the wing of an airplane and then they fly that plane the scope three emitter is the one who's sitting in the in the in the seat or has their 
uh, have their goods flying from point A to point B. So that's a scope three emitter. So by the scope three emitter, Microsoft taking the lead, they can then work with their airline partner to say, we'll buy the scope three piece and allocate to you the scope one piece. So you can also decarbonize your activity. And so, uh, and so it's really a, a flipping the script a little bit. It doesn't mean that the, that the, the airlines are no longer uh, important. They are important. They're a critical piece. And of course, DHL, DHL is primarily a scope one emitter. And so they provide a perfect example of the, the, the other side of the, the, the coin. So DHL has also entered into a long-term agreement with us. These long-term agreements mean that we are going to not only, they're not just buying fuel from us, they're building an industry with us. The same with Microsoft. They're building an industry uh, with us over a 10-year period. This is not so that uh, that kind of a uh, arm's length transaction between two companies that are just trying to get each other to do something at the highest value, so um, uh, or highest price. So of course, we're trying to drive the highest value. Um, but DHL is creating a service that they can then provide to their customer base, and they can do the same thing. We're going to move everything from point A to point B in a decarbonized way, unless you check the box to do it in a high carbon way. Right. Uh, they, they can provide to their customer base a service that others can't, which is to say, we will get your products where they need to go uh, with the same level of reliability and service, but in a decarbonized way. And it's, it's, it's really exciting. Both of them are really good uh, examples of how this new service is going to exist. Right. That's what's going to drive SAF availability. I think some people think, you know, we're going to just sit back and someday SAF will just appear. Well, these are multi-billion dollar investments. There's got to be a market that they get sold into. That's the market. Right. No, this is very exciting. I've I've loved the journey here from, a, you know, a plant you bought in Los Angeles to your decision to invest in it to the Nova Scotia green hydrogen story from wind power. Sorry. Newfoundland and Labrador, not Nova Scotia. I'm still thinking Atlantic Canada. Um, to to working with airlines as pioneers, now working as corporates as pioneers. If you look forward, what gives you the most hope about the future of sustainable aviation? I guess what gives me the most hope is um, customers need it to happen. You look at consulting firms, for example. Well, what do they do? They jump on. You you, you run a consulting firm. What do you do? You jump on airplanes and you go see customers. And in your case, you often see those customers about how they should decarbonize. Well, how long are you going to be able to do that in a world where decarbonized aviation exists? Oops, you're frozen. Can you hear me? Okay, perfect. How long will you be able to do that in a world in which the service of decarbonization exists, but you're not accessing it? So if you're if, if, if Simplify is going to come over and uh, advise uh, World Energy here in Boston uh, about our strategies to, or whatever, won't I want you to do it in a decarbonized way? Wouldn't Absolutely. at some point it just kind of become standard business for you that you'll need to do that? And you'll, of course, charge me for the flight in any case because it's part of the consulting fee I'm paying. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, 
in, in many consultancies, their number one area of growth is in decarbonization strategy. Right. How are you going to fly around the world telling people how to decarbonize in a, in a non-decarbonized way? I mean, it's, 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 it's an example. But it, what it is is an example of, and there will be first movers in this space. Right. But it's an example of we're not getting people to spend money they don't need to spend or do something that's good for the environment. We're getting people to do things that are, are good for their business by making their brand mean something, avoiding the hypocrisy of going to advise on decarbonization in a, in a carbon-intensive way. I mean, that's, right. obviously that one just leaps off the page. But there are many of these kinds of examples, right? The, so companies, the best companies in the world are looking for real solutions. They're not yeah. looking to put out a press release. So one of the things about that you had mentioned earlier, you know, companies kind of signing up for a lot of offtake agreements. And signing up for offtake agreements doesn't mean a thing. If you can't be insured that that product's income. So I've seen, you know, the the press release war. We've all seen the press release war. Who can put out a bigger press release for a bigger volume of SAP at longer? Well, all of that is predicated on the fuel selling at the price of fossil uh, uh, jet. And guess what? It can't be done. So you, if, if you're, if, if it may be a couple years ago, those, those agreements would have been done in good faith. But if you're signing one of those today, you know it can't be done. You know it can't be done. So you, if you're really serious about decarbonization, you're creating the product of decarbonized flight with real staff that really exists. It's not some promise to create effectively a product that can't be produced. It's well, simple arithmetic. It cannot be produced at the price of fossil jet. The feeling I'm getting is that Eugene and your team at World Energy are the real deal. You're bringing the future today and you're able to make this a reality uh, through innovative products. I, I would say Book and Claim is an innovation taken from the ATM example that you gave, an international ATM, and applied to energy and to SAF in, in this case. And I love the journey. I love the reinvention of an older company into the future and congratulations on all the progress that you have made i i do wish you all the best uh, in many more agreements both with airlines as well as with corporates because who doesn't want to be a leader in this well i appreciate uh, having the conversation with you i've, I've liked it the next time we do this i'll keep my answers shorter <laughs> No, but this I, is enthusiasm level. No, this is this is great. Um, before we close, there's a there's a final piece of this podcast interview which I do with all my guests. It's called the rapid fire round, okay. in which I'll ask you simple one line questions, and you can give me simple one word or small phrase for answers. Okay, okay. so we'll start with something simple. What's your favorite movie? The Graduate. The Graduate. Fantastic movie. I love it. Um, what's your uh, favorite book? Uh, Sapiens. I love uh, Nawal Harari as well. Uh, what is your favorite city? Amsterdam. Nice. Um, how about something that 
Gene still wants to learn? Oh boy. Uh, everything. Okay. What do you do in your free time? Uh, I like to be in nature. I, I, I like uh, walks in the woods with my dogs. Uh, I like to be in nature. I like to be on water. I like, to, like to be in, in the natural world. Very nice. Are you a sailor? Uh, I am. Yeah. There you go. I, I guess that, that was the hint Any there. Any type of boat. It can be a big boat. It can be a small boat. It can be powered. <laughs> be, uh, not powered. It can be a paddle board. It can be anything. Nice. Um, what's the best advice you have received? Uh, best advice I've ever received. This one's not going to be rapid fire because it's, it's uh, too many things are coming into my mind. <laughs> um, I think you just got to be yourself and go with it. And, and I think that is um, something that my father uh, really put into my head. Okay. Be authentic. Be yourself. Um, if you had the choice, who would you love to be on an 18-hour flight, let's say from Boston to Singapore? Who would you love to be seated next to? This can be a person living or, uh, or dead. Well, for what comes to mind is Harari because uh, he's just uh, he's just brilliant. And and final question uh, for Eugene: If we are to speak a year from now and we are popping champagne, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating that that, that the market has taken shape. That the that the service of decarbonizing flight is no longer something that I have to give a five minute answer to. That uh, it just is obvious, and Fantastic. and companies are lining up to do it, and they get it, and they're buying in and and airlines are understanding that those companies are, are not competitive they're they're part of the supply chain and that we are all starting to move towards the center to make this work right this is fantastic gene thank you it's been a pleasure speaking with you i loved our detailed chats thank you for being open for being authentic and for explaining concept concepts that are difficult in very simple ways i really appreciate it I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sustainability in the Air. Aviation is one of the hardest to decarbonize industries, yet there are multiple paths to get to net zero. Awareness is key to a green future. So please give us your support to help our sustainable aviation insights reach a wider audience. You can do this by sharing this episode on your network, on LinkedIn, Twitter, or even WhatsApp. Or perhaps you might consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this episode. You can start a conversation with us by writing to us at podcast at simplifying, that's simply with an I, dot com. And for more content on sustainable aviation, please visit our website, green.simplifying.com and join the movement. Sustainability in the Air is an original podcast by Simplifying. The show is produced by Uri Toth in Slovakia. Dirk Singer is our Director of Sustainability who leads research for each interviewee out of Greenwich, UK. Shubhadeep Pal is our Supervising Editor based out of Mumbai and Singapore. The articles are written by Ayushi Badola in Dehradun in India and Mira Hull in Montreal, Quebec. Creative design is led by Lihia Esteve in Montreal. Baiba Dreamen is the project director for the show based out of Valencia, Spain. Special thanks to Wendy Sim in Singapore. 
and I'm Shashank Nigam, the CEO of Simplifying and your host. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn.